Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. We did it. We made it to another weekend. Coming up, Mary Roach is going to talk to us about her new book, Fuzz, and she gives us the lowdown on counterfeit tiger penises. Yes, you heard me right. The thing is, though, the tiger's penis is very small. But first, it's our chat about the week that was with two excellent panelists. John Paul Bramer writes an advice column for The Cut called Ola Poppy. Ola Poppy is also the title of his book, A Memoir and Essays. JP, hey. Hello. We also have Helen Rosner, who is a writer who talks about food, among other things, at The New Yorker. Helen, hello. Hi. Happy to be here. Happy to have both of you. Um, as always, lots of COVID news this week. I think we should start there. Uh, Pfizer is asking for official FDA approval of their vaccine for 5 to 11-year-olds. Thousands of public school employees in New York City got vaccinated before the deadline there. Meanwhile, New Zealand has decided to give up on its goal of no one getting COVID there. Something that I've been thinking about a lot lately is how I'm kind of just assuming that everyone in my circles is vaccinated. And I think especially as my social circles sort of like expand more and more, I'm realizing maybe that's not quite the case as much as I had assumed. And I have a friend actually who recently told me that like someone she's been hanging out with pretty intensely wasn't vaccinated and it wasn't until she explicitly asked that she found out. And it just made me wonder, you know, is this something that y'all have been thinking about too? JP, that was a that was a knowing noise you just made. No, um, everyone I know is vaccinated as far as I'm aware. In fact, like uh, sometimes we'll be waiting to go into a bar and the person will be like, I need to see proof of vaccination. And one hor- horrible thing that I've been doing lately is taking a long pause and widening my eyes and having my friends react as if I'm not vaccinated. And they just like, they look at me and they're like, there's no way. Right. <laughs> and I'm like, no, yeah, 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 yeah. It's fine. I mean, that is like monstrous behavior, but it does make a lot of sense that in New York, you're not worried about it as much because of all the rules set up. Is that the case for you too, Alan? Yeah. I'm not sure if it's the city or the state, but you have to show proof of vaccination basically to walk Mm -hmm. through any doorway at this point. And it hadn't even occurred to me that my friends could be lying to me about this. (laughs) (laughs) I think also because everybody that I know has been so obsessively chronicling the journey to get vaccinated a few months ago. And, you know, everybody's like, ah, dose two, high fever, right? Like this sort of performative. Oh my God. Yes. Not performative in the sense of fake, but like the performance of vaccine, vaccine desire, yeah. acquisition, side effects, right. and then like the emotional and physical liberation that follows. And it would be so much effort for them to fake that. I know. Well, and I don't know. I mean, maybe there is a distinction between like actively lying about it, but just not mentioning it. I think that's the thing that that this anecdote kind of made me realize is like 
have I been explicitly asking, for, you know, and yes, there are friends with whom I had those conversations in, you know, February and March or whatever is like, oh, did you get an appointment yet? Where did you go? How see, you know, like whatever. But yeah, I don't know. All of a sudden it was just sort of like, oh, wait a second. The thing about gay men in New York is that like every last little bit of this whole process has been chronicled on Twitter via threads. So <laughs> it'll just be like, just got my first dose, a thread. Just got my second dose, a thread. Just got my breakthrough case. Here's what I'm feeling. It's like, you will know. There will be full-on press releases. You will know everything about gay New Yorkers and their journey with COVID. I know more about my friend's health than I ever have in my entire life. More than I need to know. I did really love the like vaccine follow-up updates. Like 12, 12 hours since I got the shot. Slightly <laughs> nauseated. So far, fine. Drinking heavily, like lots of water. It's okay, you know? It, it feels like, you know, sort of at last our, our like brainworm compelled instinct to chronicle every single thought and experience that we have on social media has a somewhat socially beneficial outcome. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so just what we needed, I guess. Speaking of social good, that'll work for our transition, actually. So on Monday, Facebook and WhatsApp and Instagram all shut down for about six hours on Monday. It was just like complete blackout. Facebook blamed it on a faulty configuration change, which I have no idea what that means. Uh, are y'all on the apps, JP? I use Instagram a lot. I have to keep in touch with my boyfriends somehow, um, <laughs> which is what I was really afraid of. I was like, is it gone forever? Have I lost like 20 relationships in one fell swoop? Because, you know, it, it's common practice where like, if you go on Grindr and you have a particularly good conversation or you have like a hookup or something afterwards, like, oh, what's your Insta? Let's keep in mm -hmm. touch. Yeah. And then you, you get these guys to send you little flame emojis on your pictures sometimes. And oh, it's, yeah, it's nice. It's nice. Yeah. So <laughs> that could have been taken away from me all because of this monopoly that Facebook has on everything. So I was upset. Uh, I never go on Facebook ever. Um, it really scares me. But I, for a brief, I will say shining moment, I thought that Goliath was kind of dead um, at a huge personal cost with Instagram. But still, I was like, it, this is probably better for society, you know. It's like, maybe this is just the debt I need to pay to make everything yeah, better. Yeah, we all have to make sacrifices for a better world. It's fine. <laughs> what do you think, Helen? I also had this sort of like, is this it moment? I, you know, I think huh. I, this is probably a symptom of some thing I should talk about with my therapist, but for years <laughs> and years now, I have had this sort of daydream of like, what if the internet just disappears? Like what if something <laughs> happens and we can never get it back? And it's just like, well, that was cool. I guess we have to rebuild society <laughs> now. And, um, you know, my entire career would collapse and right. probably <laughs> a lot of yours too. Yeah. Of ours. yeah. And, and in some say. ways that would be incredibly lip. I mean, this is, you know, like the, the, the tyranny of capitalism fantasy, right? I'm like, oh my God, we're all free now. <laughs> and, and this idea that, you know, as soon as all of these Facebook owned networks went down, like instantly there was the secondary rumor of like, they're gone forever, right? Like it's mm -hmm. not just that, that the servers failed. It's like the servers have exploded and melted. And this is like the final scene of fight club where just like, we are free now. Trust me. Everything's going to be fine. I had that similar reaction. Um, one thing about me is I'm kind of like God's perfect idiot in that every day <laughs> I go on Twitter, it works on me. The hyperbole always works on me. No matter how many times 
it fails to actually materialize. I saw that tweet that was like, they didn't just shut Facebook down for the day. It's gone. I was like, oh my God, it's gone. Yes. It's gone. <laughs> and, and, and there was like a picture of code. Yes. If we're thinking yes. of the same tweet, there was like a screenshot of a black screen like, with like white text on it. And I don't know what that exactly. means. Like, mind you, <laughs> I don't know what code is. I haven't looked at code since I was like doing MySpace in high school or whatever and i'm looking at it i'm like it sure is it's gone i see it right there right oh in front yeah of me. that's yeah. what it says right i was like thoughtfully stroking my chin as if i completely understood what i was <laughs> seeing i was like yeah yeah checks out <laughs> yeah i am so excited to talk to both of you about this uh bad art friend yes. situation oh my god i'm obsessed with it here we go because like i thought the facebook news was big early this week especially with the whole whistle whistleblower thing which i like right. we don't even have time to get into that because we need to save time for bad art friend um so this is a lengthy piece that came out in the new york times magazine earlier this week it is called who is the bad art friend uh it exploded the internet i'm gonna do my best to to explain it to people who haven't had the great fortune of reading it yet. Um, this is about Don Dorland, who is a white woman and aspiring writer who donated her kidney and got mad at people who she thought were her friends who didn't praise her more for that good deed. Uh, and then she got really mad when someone she thought was, she was friends with Sonia Larson, who's a mixed race, Asian American woman wrote a short story about a white lady who donated a kidney. There are so many great details. I know y'all chimed in on this one on Twitter. Helen, what did you think? It just seemed very clear to me, though apparently it is not nearly as clear to everybody else. So I don't know, maybe the world is evenly split, that maybe there are no heroes here, right? But it seemed to me that there was definitely somebody who was more of a villain. Like I, I felt like, yes. like the the woman who donated the kidney who made a private facebook group to talk about the process of doing this kidney donation <laughs> and yeah. then reached out to people she had added to this group like like she she affirmatively added people to this group without their you know choosing to be in it she then noticed that some people had not been engaging with her posts enough and so she reached out to them personally to be like why aren't you liking my facebook statuses in my private facebook group about how i donated a kidney i mean that to me was just sort of the first red flag of this is not a person who i think has a normal sense of how what she does should be engaged with by the people around her and then, you know, like the way that this escalates, there are so many twists and turns. And I do actually want to give a shout out to the story itself. Yeah. Like, I think the plot yes. is is fascinating and, and twisty, written. but yeah. the way it's written is incredible. And Bob Colker, the guy who wrote it, is like a master of telling these. He's a true crime writer. I mean, he's most famous for that yeah. sort of thing. And he takes what is basically a low stakes friend drama story yes. and tells it with just astonishing finesse, like. Ultimately, this ends up, you know, lawsuits and counter lawsuits. And it turns out that Sonia's friend group has been talking shit about Dawn behind her back. But that didn't come out until Dawn had subpoenaed the emails in the countersuit to Sonia's lawsuit saying, stop harassing me after Dawn had hired a lawyer to try to suppress the dissemination of this short story. I mean, it's unreal. The layers are just like unreal. <laughs> it, is. it is. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It, what you're, To your point about the story, it is like exquisitely told. There's this moment where... Like partly what Sonia's accused of plagiarizing is a letter that Dawn had written to her future kidney recipient and she changes. And so Sonia, like one thing she does is she changes the very last word to 
is kindly. it kindly yeah. is that how done oh oh my god and like just that detail which you had heard earlier is like the cute character thing about like how dawn signs her emails it was just so perfect it was delicious uh jp what do you think like what should the takeaways of this be well my first thoughts after walking away from it was like oh thank god someone got a kidney out of this yeah sure (laughs) like at the end of the day (laughs) if i was doing like a vox like winners and losers life was saved like winner man who got kidney um losers loser all of us Um, everyone participating in the discourse (laughs) like when i tell you every little twist and turn had me just like titillated i was like this is incredible i really the takes that i dislike the most about this are ones that are like why was this written or like i can't believe that this is so long or like um it's like (laughs) no this is literature (laughs) don't you dare and it's not just that it's literature. It's it's that these women are both fiction writers and there are descriptions of the way that they write in yeah. in this piece. Yes. And I don't want to spoil anything because I think everyone should go read this like as literature, like exactly as JP says. But <laughs> the way that the author of this piece almost metatextually uses the techniques that each of these women uses in their own writing is unreal like it's unreal oh my god absolutely well and i think too i mean i think he did a great job of capturing how how devastating and confusing it can be when you do think you're closer to someone than they think you Mm -hmm. are you know i mean that like imbalance of a friendship can be heartbreaking do i think that justifies any of her behaviors absolutely not But I don't know. I thought it was, I mean, given how complicated that story was, it felt to me like a very compassionate rendering. And it was just like gossipy as fuck. Amazing. Yeah. (laughs) It's also like there's just this whole genre of article where it's like, okay, now we get to pick sides. You know, it reminds me of like the (laughs) the Natalie Beach, Carolyn Calloway thing. It reminds me of like Mm -hmm. the cat person essay where everyone just has to sort of like align with I'm team this person, I'm team that person, which of course does a disservice to like, I think the complicated beings at the center of all this. Like, I, I right. Like humanity. Exactly. Yeah. That's like just what Twitter does. But that's how I knew right when I saw it, I was like, yep, we're going to have the team Sonia's and the team Don's and we're going to have ourselves a little rumble on Twitter today. And do I want to contribute <laughs> early or do I want to just wait this out? <laughs> I mean, I truly think that my biggest mistake was that I tweeted too early about this. And that's why my tweet of the story ended up becoming one of the big ones. And now I'm like, I, I locked my Twitter account because I was just tired of people with anime avatars telling me that I was a monster for thinking that a woman who did this selfless act of donating a kidney could ever do anything wrong again in her life. And I was just like, no, I like, honestly, I think the kidney is the least important part of this story in some ways. It it is wonderful that she did this like giving a kidney to somebody especially an anonymous donation like a donation to somebody not in your life is the most beautiful powerful important thing it has nothing to do with this story except that it's the precipitating element and the nightmare can you imagine the nightmare of having your group chats subpoenaed oh my god by somebody yeah. oh. to find out if you're gossiping about them good lord no that's that's like truly horrific I thought we were safe in the group chat. We should be. Well, and this kind of like ties back to what we were talking about earlier when we thought that technology and social media had kind of 
completely capitulated where and there is a degree to where I'm like, oh, the toxicity it's leaving my body. It is absolutely right. being excised from me because <laughs> these tech giants failed and I'll never have to log into Twitter or Instagram ever again. And I can be holy again. <laughs> I do kind of like that it's idea. It's the new asceticism, right? Like, <laughs> like monastic holiness. Like, it's fine if you eat. It's fine if you have a lot of sex. Just don't go on social media. Just stay off Twitter for God's sake. And that sake. is spiritual purity. I agree. <laughs> well, on that note, I think we should call it. Helen, JP, this was so much fun. Y'all are the best. This was a thrill. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. In just a minute, our talk with Mary Roach about her new book, Fuzz, takes some unexpected turns. Would there have been a, a tangent about tiger penises that you would expect? Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Have you ever wanted to put the mice that are infesting your home pantry on trial for breaking and entering or issue a fine to the crows who are stealing the hard-earned vegetables out of your garden? My next guest, Mary Roach, traveled the globe investigating the sticky, complicated situations that arise when wildlife breaks the laws intended for humans. Mary is the author of the hilarious and illuminating science books Gulp, Stiff, and Grunt, among others. Her latest is Fuzz, When Nature Breaks the Law. Mary, welcome back to Nerdette. Thank you so much. I want to start with the first paragraph of the book, which describes a 17th century grievance against caterpillars. Can you set that one up for us? (laughs) Yeah, 1659... In a province of northern Italy. In a province (laughs) in Italy. So farmers, farmers growing crops, uh, caterpillars come Mm -hmm. in as they do. They're hungry. They're about to become, they're hungry. So they're eating all the crops and people are upset. So the town fathers, the powers that be, actually posted summons on trees near these plots of land, telling the caterpillars that they were to appear in court on a set date, at which point they would be assigned legal representation. And what happened? This is a true story. Uh, well, the caterpillars, having pupated and not knowing how to read, uh, didn't show up. <laughs> there was, uh, But there were legal proceedings that happened anyway, and the uh, whoever the uh, legal representation was, uh, in their wisdom, decided we will set aside an alternate plot of land for the caterpillars uh, so that the people can have their food and everybody will hmm. live in peace and harmony kind of a show of, first of all, power, like we have dominion yeah. over all of nature, and also a kind of a show of compassion and wisdom. And so sort of sort of theatrics, The Criminal Prosecution and Capital Punishment of Animals, a 1906 book. That is where I 
learned about this and other bizarre <laughs> approaches to human wildlife conflict. It's just so amazing. What are some of your other favorite examples of this from the book that you came across? Oh, there were bears excommunicated from the church. There was a lot of belief uh, in past centuries that when animals misbehaved, they were demonic, they were possessed, and that perhaps the people had been sinning and this had been done to them as a punishment. So there were all kinds of kind of unusual beliefs about why animals were doing what they were doing and what should be done about it. That's so wild. From your own life, have there been any serious incursions that you think about a lot? Like I remember one, it's sort of like a legendary story that we tell in my family where me and my brother were little, little kids. We were hanging out on the beach in Juneau, Alaska. So it's like cold beach, you know? Mm -hmm. And we had a bag of Lay's sour cream and onion potato chips, and we were so excited to eat them. And the fucking ravens got in there. They opened the bag. They devoured it. And we were like, no. And, you know, it's just one of the like, of course, they eat the chips, right? It makes total sense. But like, I don't know. I, I wonder if as, you know, a three-year-old or whatever, if I could have filed a grievance, I might have. Are there any stories like that in your own life? Well, in the course of reporting this book, I was mugged by a macaque. A rhesus macaque, right. and and they were slick. It was actually a team. Yes. I was I was walking up this path toward uh, a fort. Uh, this was in uh, Bundi, a small city in India, and uh, I knew that there were monkeys up there. And I was carrying a a bag from the market that contained bananas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a crime of opportunity. It was my own <laughs> stupidity, and uh, I got it. I got nailed. And but the amazing thing was that. Well, first, like, one of them steps into the path, and we're just sort of sizing each other up. Mm-hmm. And he's kind of eyeing the bag. And before anything happens, a second monkey comes darting out and grabs the bag. So kind of one distracted me, and one grabbed <laughs> the bag, which is a, you know, you, you, that happens with uh, pickpockets. I've been pickpocketed, not by an animal. But, you know, one person asks you, oh, yeah, what bus stop is this? And the other person takes the thing from your bag. So they're pretty slick, these guys. It's so funny. So you have always had a knack for finding topics that are, you know, strange and a little squishy. How did this one get your attention? Well, it was kind of a roundabout path that led to this topic. I thought for a while that I might do something having to do with the forensics of wildlife trafficking. I actually went up to the National Wildlife Forensics Laboratory to meet this woman, Bonnie Yates, who has since retired. Uh, She put together this extensive library of animal hairs. Yeah. She's also the author of a paper on how to tell real versus counterfeit dried tiger penis. <laughs> and it's an eight page document, eight page paper. Uh, I I am now really good at that. Yeah. I mean, wow. Why is that? Are they good luck somewhere or something? They're used medicinally with quotes. Uh, they're wow. used for as a virility booster. Oh, sure. Because the tiger is considered a very potent and virile animal. Right. The thing is, though, the tiger's penis is very small. Mm. Dried, it's the size of a claw. It's very... Wow, that's itty-bitty. It's not very, shall we say, inspirational. So (laughs) almost always, happily for the tiger, what is being passed off as as tiger penis is deer, cow, horse, something that's easily obtained and also larger and more inspirational for whoever is (laughs) trying to... Uh, absorb some of that juju. Oh my goodness, that's amazing. Anyway, so that I, I, I was heading in that direction, and the director of the lab said, um, "You know, no, you can't tag along on any open case because legally, if it's an open case, you can't. Right. 
flat stop. So on the way back to the drawing board, kind of thought about what if you turned it inside out and what if the wildlife were the perpetrators and the people were the victims? I love it. So, I mean, in this book, perhaps unsurprisingly, you spend a fair amount of time talking about poop and learning about animal feces. One section, just one <laughs> section, <laughs> maybe five pages. Well, it wouldn't be a Mary Roach book, would it? No, exactly. It didn't have some shit in it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, but in all seriousness about poop, can you explain what a fecal harness is? Oh, thank you for asking that. You're the first person to ask really? about a fecal harness. Nobody's asked me about <laughs> fecal harnesses. Welcome to Nerdette. <laughs> so, okay. Um, well, I talk about how um, wildlife biology has always been a kind of snooping because these are wild animals and they're out in the wild. And unless you're going to kill them or trap them, you can't necessarily know what they're, let's say, what they're eating. And that was a big interest uh, back in the day when people were like, which animals are eating our agriculture? We're going to look in their stomach and find out. You can also use it to figure out the population of a species, you know, especially a species that's in the woods, that's kind of scattered, that's moving around. You can sort of go through and use shit as proxy for a shitter. So you can uh, you can count count the number of if you have to be able to recognize that that is that species poop, but then you can count the number of piles of poop, but you do need to know the defecation rate. This is where the harness came in. This was goats, some wild goats. I think mm -hmm. it was Greece. And it's been a while since I read this section and because no one asks about it. I'm so no excited. So they needed a baseline of how much do these goats defecate uh, over a set amount of time. So, this researcher devised a harness for them. So you're talking about something we've seen probably on horses at parades to collect the poop. Got it. Yes, but two problems. One was that the, the, the goats love to stand up on their hind legs and eat from the top branches of bushes. Mm -hmm. And it didn't and they couldn't do this because the harness was a little too tight and was kind of restricting their movements. And the other problem was that goats being goats, would eat each other's leather harnesses. <laughs> so anyway, that's, that's a fecal harness. There's not typically another reason for somebody to be wearing a fecal harness. And that, that's, yeah, yeah, that makes and sense. Maybe for some people that's a fetish. I don't know. <laughs> maybe that's the next book. Maybe. How much do you feel like the life that you've carved out for yourself essentially is like getting to hang out with a bunch of people with very strange jobs and, and trying them on for size? Uh-huh. Probably 90% <laughs> of what I do. That's what I do. And I love it. I mean, that's got to just be such a treat. Yeah. It is. It's like this free pass to step into these worlds that a couple of months ago you didn't even yeah. know existed. And to me, that's the ultimate kind of travel. It's just such a joy for me anyway, to spend a day or two in to step into somebody's world and see what they do. And also their passion for these sometimes mm -hmm. very specific and very obscure things. Do you think writing this book kind of changed your reverence for nature? Um, I've always been kind of a softie for animals and mm -hmm. insects. But I think that this book made me feel a little more sympathy for the animals that we dismiss as pests. The ones that, you know, the, the rodents and the birds that poop on things and get into our attics and things like that. And the, the, and because we because of that word pest, mm. we have this tendency to just 
think of them as something to be dealt with by someone else. You just call someone, oh, we've got an infestation of fill in the blank. I'm going to call the service. We'll come and deal with it. And the word pest just gives us permission, I think, to have them destroyed and, and without a lot of thought. So I guess I feel kind of more protective of those creatures, especially because there's there are ways to handle them humanely. First of all, to prevent the conflict from happening in the first place, if you're talking about them getting into your house. Um, it had pushed me a little farther down that spectrum, I guess. That's sweet. I mean, what do you think is the most striking example of, of coexistence between humans and nature that does really seem to work well that you found over the course of your research? Well, I think India is a lovely example because of Hinduism. They have a kind of a built-in reverence for nature and wildlife, wild animals and plants. They're, they're often, if they're not deities, they're the spouse of the deity mm-hmm. or they're the conveyance of the deity. So, so there is this, um, there's more of a, of a tolerance. I mean, Prime Minister Modi bestowed personhood on the Ganges. Hmm. Wow. I mean, obviously the, the, the river can't vote <laughs> or pay taxes. It's not like that, but but it's some kind of level of added protection. That's beautiful, though. I think so, too. And I think as a culture, we've come quite a ways from, you know, the eras of putting bounties on bears and wolves and cougars and bobcats and coyotes. We're on track, maybe? Yeah. I mean, it's, it is it is a very polarized issue, like so much in this country today. Yeah. I, I have a certain amount of hope. There's a, a, a number of organizations that to promote that promote coexistence, uh, not just as a philosophy, but by bringing in people with opposing viewpoints and, and bringing them together for two or three days to have conversations, not just to talk, but to listen. And I think that's the only way forward is to uh, foster dialogue. You got to change human behavior. It's pretty hard to change the behavior of a wolf. Right. right. Or a cougar. <laughs> you know, you sit down and have a talk with that guy. <laughs> right. Look, that's kind of the whole deal, right? I'd like to suggest some dietary changes for you. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much. You are just like such a goddamn delight. This was really fun to talk with you. Oh, no, you are. <laughs> I enjoyed this so much. All right, that's it for this week. We will be back on Friday. And in the meantime, of course, you can keep in touch with us on the interwebs. We are on Twitter and Instagram at Nerdat Podcast. I am on both of those apps. If they're up at Greta M. Johnson. You can also find us in our Facebook group. That is at facebook.com slash groups slash HQ. And that's a pretty fun place to be because we talk about all kinds of stuff. It's just like a place for listeners to get to know each other and talk about what they're super into. It's a fun corner of the internet, if I do say so myself. Also, we have a newsletter. We send it out every Friday morning. It's got great links for me and our new producer, Anna. You can sign up for that if you go to wbez.org slash nerdetaf. The show is produced by me and Anna Bauman, and our executive producer is Brendan Banaszak. We will see you next week. Oh my God, you asked about fecal harnesses. It doesn't get better than that. 
Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.